So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So you can follow along as I read. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse... Actually, let's read the last line of verse 5. This is, this is God's word, God's gift to us. Verse 5, end of verse, verse 5 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for electing us and for your promise to, to see our salvation all the way through to the end. All might all dominion belongs to you. You are the great one. You are the king. And you have chosen to love us. You have chosen to show us mercy. Rebels. Thank you for your mercy. You have chosen to give us undeserved favor and not to give it to us in piecemeal but to lavish us with undeserved favor we are surrounded by enveloped by your favor we thank you in this passage you give us a warning and encouragements and what love you have for us to give us such warnings and such encouragements. Amazing that you would care about us that way. So may we be overwhelmed by your kindness to us in Christ as we receive your word as a gift, as direction to more blessing, as direction from you on how we can enjoy you more and bring you glory. And that's, that is what we want to do. We want you to be glorified in our lives. So teach us now. We pray this through Christ. Amen. So that last line in verse 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a problem with that statement. You see the problem? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The problem with that statement is that the people who most need to take that truth into their hearts, 
will have the most difficulty doing so. The proud one will read that statement and he'll probably think that he's humble. And so he won't receive it. It's like the warning will just bounce off the surface of his hardened heart. He thinks he's already humble. The proud one will not care that he might not be receiving grace from God. He feels self-sufficient. What do I need? Things are going, going along swimmingly. The proud one won't, won't care that God might be opposed to him. That's not even a threat to him. The proud one might not even hear the statement. He reads it, and he has a hard time even slowing down his mind and his heart to take it in and to even consider it because he's so self-absorbed. His heart and his mind is so filled with all of his ambitions and all of his goals for life that he can't even quiet his soul and quiet his heart to consider the warning that God is, the serious warning that God is giving him. He finds reasons to put himself beyond the reach of God's warning. He just assumes, well, God would never be opposed to me. The humble one knows his sinfulness and his weakness. He knows that Christ is his only hope for salvation, for his sanctification, for everything. He trembles at the thought that he would be living the Christian life apart from the enjoyment of and dependence on God's grace. He trembles at the idea that he would parent without having God's grace assisting him and strengthening him and directing him. So he's sensitive. He's sensitive to that warning that the Apostle Peter gave to husbands, uh, you know, to live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's just, that's a terrifying thought to him that he would pray and the Lord would would hold him at arm's length and not hear his prayers. The humble one hears Peter's statement. He says, oh, I do not want to be, I don't want God to be opposed to me. I need his grace. I am helpless without him. And so, so I just exhort you to, to hear and to feel this warning from God. It is true. Whether or not you understand it or accept it or think about it, it is true. God is opposed to the proud, and He does. He always, He gives grace to the humble. If you want His grace, you want to enjoy His grace, you must be humble. So Peter says, gives this warning, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Then after that statement, he builds on it with that word, therefore, right, in verse 6. Therefore, because this is true, therefore, humble yourselves. So Peter goes on to give two essentials for getting grace from God for spiritual battle. I think that's the context here. That's what the book's about, spiritual battle. Uh, what's the battle? The battle is uh, living in a world that's in opposition to God, right? We're citizens of another kingdom, and now we're exiles and aliens in this world. So we're, we battle the world, but also the battle is, and he's made it clear, our fleshly lusts wage war against our soul. 
right? It said in chapter 2. So the battle is in our hearts too. So these are two essentials for getting grace from God for spiritual battle, and then that's followed by two encouragements to persevere. So the first one comes in verse 6 and 7, humbly entrust your concerns to God. That's the first essential for getting grace from God. You want, you want to enjoy His undeserved favor? To have Him, His love for you, strengthening you? Then humbly entrust your concerns to God. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. So the main command there is humble yourselves. Verse 7 completes the thought, completes the idea with that phrase, casting all your anxiety on Him. So He wants you to humble yourself, but the thing that He has in mind when it comes to pursuing humility or to living out that humility, the thing He has in mind is you take all of your concerns, all of your anxieties, and you cast them on Him. An essential part of humbling yourself under God is throwing your anxiety on Him. If you have concerns and anxieties and you don't throw them on Him, then you are proud. That's an amazing thought. One morning I woke up at 3.30 and my pride kept me awake. I started to worry. Right? Peter's words indicate to us that that worry is a form of pride. This isn't a real common notion, so it's important to grasp this. Why is worry prideful? And by the way, this is something I think that even in the biblical counseling movement, uh, people lack clarity. I've seen articles written in the last year, uh, like through CCEF, if you're familiar, talking about how worry is not a sin. And uh, that... You know, the, the article goes, explains that, you know, there's, a, there's commands to fear not and commands to not be anxious. But those aren't commands given, the article says, like an obligation, if you don't do it, then you're sinning. They say, the article says, that's not the spirit of those commands. No, they're, they're, uh, they're uh, encouragements, uh, expressing love, right? Like you would tell your fearful child, don't worry. When you say don't worry, it's an expression of love. It's not, a, it's not really a command. So if they go on to worry, you're going to give them a spanking? Right? That's the reasoning. Okay, I can understand that. I can appreciate that. Yeah, fear not. It's the most popular command in all the Bible. There is no more frequently given command than fear not. And that's awesome. Doesn't that tell you something about our God? That He cares about us and our situation. He's compassionate. Yet... Though it's an expression of love, it doesn't mean that it's not sin if we ignore it. Peter makes it abundantly clear that part of humility is casting our our anxieties on Him. And when we don't cast our anxieties on Him, when we continue in worry without entrusting things to Him, and like Psalm uh, 37 says, rolling our way onto Him, rolling our ways onto Him. It's too heavy. We can't even get up underneath it and... And, and lift it. We just have to just try and push it off of ourselves. That's all we can do. But he's strong. He can take it, right? So if we don't do that, though, Peter's saying, that's, that's indicative of pride. 
indicative of pride. So I totally disagree with those articles from CCEF and other biblical counselors who have said that. And of course, the world has said this. Obviously, this all, they always say this, right? Uh, but in the world of Christian counseling, not biblical, but the bigger <laughs> category, Christian, they've always said this. It's not sin. But uh, no, we are commanded, and it is pride if we have these things. Uh, but God, when He sees us in our sin, and his, his compassion and His pity is poured out even on sinners. That's, that's just incredible. Uh, so it, it is a command. He is calling it sin if we don't do it. But He is inviting us to, to find our strength and comfort and solace in Him and to enjoy Him. So it is compassion. Um, so when we worry, we say prideful things in our hearts like, I'm not getting my way. We're always saying that when we worry. Or I might not get my way. This is what I want. And I might not get it. Uh, I might not like the way this will turn out. And I know that I can determine what the best thing to happen is. And, but as I look at it now, it might not happen. I mean, I know it should happen. I know it'd be better for this to happen, but it might not. That's what we're saying when we worry. Or we're saying, I might not be able to control this. I don't think I, I can control this. And so we're worrying. Those statements and beliefs reveal that the worrier is most concerned with himself and trusts in himself. And with all those thoughts, he's magnifying himself. We always magnify that which we rely on. We always do. Um, and uh, when, when the, with the command to, to whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, to do all to the glory of God, we are to show that he is the great heavyweight. He is the great one. That's why we, we, you were made. You were made to see the glory of God and to magnify it in your own heart, to, to ascribe glory to him and to help everyone else to do the same thing. That's the purpose of your life. Worry does not do that. Worry says he is not to be trusted. He is not sufficient. I will look to myself to accomplish this. And unfortunately, I'm very weak and incapable. And so, oh no. Right? But it, but it says I should be trusting myself. So the worrier has an inflated view of himself, thinking that everything should come down to him, that he can discern what is best. He wishes that he could be in control because if it weren't in control, he'd know how to make everything play out. Uh, he has a deflated view of God. We're a self-centered. Um, so at 3.30 in the morning on, that, on this day, I was thinking of how I had accidentally betrayed the trust of people that I love. I mean, it was It was painful. Before I went to bed, it was painful thinking about that. And, and, I, and I was thinking about this text and about how I was being proud. And it was difficult to see how my worry was sinful and prideful as I laid there in bed thinking about how God says it's prideful and sinful. <laughs> I was like, how? What's going on in my heart? Um, but I knew that clearly I wasn't 
prayerful. That problem that I had was, was pushing me away from God. I found it hard to pray. I knew it was something that was coming in between me and the Lord. Worry will always do that. Keeps you from God. It ought to be the occasion for, for pushing me to God. I can't do this. Let me run to God. Find Him to be a strong tower, right? I wasn't worshiping God. I was distressed, but I, I didn't have joy. It's okay to be distressed, right? Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It's okay for me to be grieved by what had happened, but there should be a joy and a hope that accompanies that. And I didn't have any of that. I knew that. I thought about how I had a small view of God and a big view of myself. And as I kept considering, I could see that there was some self-pity. I was becoming overwhelmed by my own failure. It's okay to be uh, pained by your own failures, your own sin. But if it's true repentance, then you run to God with it. And you entrust it to Him. And there's a whole bunch of promises for you. But this was self-pity. There was not repentance because it wasn't driving me to confess to the Lord. And as I considered my heart, I really, I really wanted my friends to like me. And I was afraid that they wouldn't because I had betrayed their trust. And I was pastoring. And I wanted to be a pastor that people could trust. Um, and I was faced with the reality that I'm not absolutely trustworthy. And, and I loved them and felt like I had worked so hard to gain their trust. Um, now I thought they wouldn't. And I was afraid others wouldn't trust me, knowing that I was a person who betrayed others' trust. Uh, I was afraid of the consequences also that my friends would experience because I had revealed some things that they didn't want others to know and it would probably come back to bite them, I thought. I played the scenarios a couple times, some scenarios I'd come up with. I played them a couple times over my mind, reminding myself each time that I, I probably wouldn't be able to stop those things from happening. So what should you do in that kind of situation? One in which you're worrying. Well, you should think about how God is opposed to you because of your worry. You should think about how you're cutting yourself off from his undeserved favor. You can't enjoy his undeserved favor and worry at the same time. Uh, you should think about how you're being proud in your worry. Let Scripture rebuke you. And then prayerfully, think about the ways that you are being self-centered in your thinking. And I say prayerfully. What I mean is don't just get to it examining your own thoughts, looking for selfishness and sin. Because if you're proud, you're going to have a hard time saying it, right? Our pride blinds us. So yeah, you're hearing, you're hearing the truth from Scripture. You are being proud. So that's your assumption. <laughs> you're going to operate according to that. So what should you do first? You should say, God, I already know that I'm proud. Would you please help me to see my pride? I am incapable of identifying my own pride and how it manifests itself. I need you. And then you're thinking, and you're talking to the Lord about it. Lord, 
Help me understand what it is that I'm really wanting most of all. Lord, what are these fundamental things that I'm believing as true that are driving me to have these concerns? Lord, help me to see what I should concern. You're just discussing these things with the Lord. Let, let, the, let the worry, the temptation to worry, drive you to greater prayer and asking Him to help you see your pride. Um, you think about what you know about God, who, the truth about who He is, and you work backwards from there. Right? That's, a, that's another thing that you do when you pray. What I know about God is, God, you're sovereign. Okay, let me think about how you're sovereign over each element here. I said that about my friends. You could have stopped me from doing that. You're sovereign, but you didn't, you didn't stop me from doing that. Right? You think about all these things. Think about a sovereign. So you start with truth about God, and, you, and you're affirming truth about Him. Lord, you tell me in your word that you are sovereign, and so... I agree you are sovereign over this. You could have stopped it, but you didn't. Right? And so you are magnifying God deliberately. You're just getting down low before, before him, and you're saying, I affirm the, what you say in your word about who you are. I affirm that. That's true. Worry is painful. No one likes to worry. Everyone wants to stop. There aren't any anxiety clubs of which people want to be a part. So, of course, the world will try to help you stop worrying. The goal with worldly counsel is to help you to be comfortable. They want, you to, they want to provide a way of relief. We don't like not being in control. When we want to be in control and we can't, we start to worry. That's what's painful. We hate not being in control. We don't like not getting what we want. And so there's drugs. That will help you. You can take some drugs that will lessen that pain. There's cognitive therapy. Uh, that's one way in which they seek to provide a measure of relief. Cognitive therapy will help you to feel in control and therefore comfortable. That's one of the methods that they use. Let's focus on some things that you can control. And they'll actually word it that way. Um, you found out that you aren't sovereign over all things and it's painful. What you need to do is focus on things that you can control so that you can enjoy the illusion of being sovereign. That's essentially what cognitive therapy does. That's their method. Focus on the things that are going your way. What are the things that you can control? Focus on that, and that will make you feel better. What can you do? List the things that you can do. Whew, okay. If I spend some time thinking about that, I'll start to feel a little better. And so what they'll do is help you to magnify yourself which is the reason why you got yourself into the problem in the first place. That's why you're worrying, because you have an inflated view of yourself, and they will feed that. That's what worldly counsel does. Obviously, they're not going to help you have a, 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 a greater view of Christ and His promises to you. They will help you try to keep, yourselves, keep yourself busy, focus on the tasks that you can complete. So God's counsel is radically different. God says we need humility. We need to remember who he is and trust him. We need to appreciate him. That's essential. If we take some other route, though we may have a measure of relief, and you do get a measure of relief that way, though you may have a measure of relief, God is 
still opposed to you. If it's pride that's driving it and the counsel doesn't lead you out of pride, God is still opposed to you. And if you belong to him, for your good, right? It's for you opposition. He will continue to oppose you. And life will be hard. You best submit to his loving discipline and accept the truth that your worry is sin and repent of it um, and enjoy his grace. So you get humble and you run towards his grace. You run towards his favor. What do you, what do you appreciate? What do you remember about him? Three things. Appreciate God's sovereignty. And that's what Peter says. Humble yourselves. That's why he says, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Remember or appreciate God's sovereignty. God doesn't literally have a hand, right? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's anthropomorphism, ascribing human characteristics to God to communicate particular truths about God. It's a reference to the power of God, orchestrating things. Peter is saying, humbly accept the circumstances of life as the outworking of God's careful direction and orchestration. He is sovereign, not just as an idea, but he has a hand in whatever's going on in your life. And so get down underneath that. Stop trying to act like it's up to you. Get down underneath that and humble yourself. So appreciate God's sovereignty. And again, what I do when I'm worrying is I might list on paper if my thoughts are so out of control, I might have to write these things down. Sometimes it helps me to pray out loud. I'll go for a walk and I'll pray out loud. Like, not really loud so everyone can hear me. <laughs> Whispering. Lord can hear me. Um, and I start to name all the things that God is sovereign over. That person thinks this. God, because you are sovereign, that person thinks that way about me. I said that ultimately because you're sovereign. You could have prevented it, but you didn't. The timing of this, you orchestrated that timing. You could have done it differently. And I just begin to name as many things as possible. I might go for 15, 20 minutes naming all the things that God is sovereign over. And I can feel myself calming down because I'm getting humble. I'm not, I'm not so arrogant thinking that things are out of control, that, that there's no God in this world who's orchestrating things. So I'm trying to have my mind renewed by Scripture. Uh, taking all those thoughts captive. Craig, you will not continue thinking that way. You must be subordinate to the Lord. So appreciate God's sovereignty and then appreciate God's wisdom is the next thing Peter says in this text. Uh, that he may exalt you at the proper time. That he may exalt you. That's still reference to his sovereignty, right? He's the one who exalts, or he might keep you down. But I think the emphasis there is at the proper time. He knows when to lift you up. You believers who are being persecuted, you slaves who have a difficult time under harsh rulers, you wives who have an unbelieving husband and are challenged by this, you're in a lowly position. You don't want your life to be carried out this way, orchestrated that way. 
The Lord has you down here, not in a place of getting what you desire. But He's in control, and there's a proper time to lift you up out of there. And built into there is the promise that He will do that, right? There's a proper time. He'll, he'll do that. But you need to trust His determination about when the proper time is. And if it's not happening now, it's because it's not proper. The Lord in His infinite wisdom, He knows the best time. And you can trust Him because He's wise. When we talk about God's wisdom, when we're talking about wisdom in general, we're talking about having the right goal. A wise person has the right goal. A fool, he doesn't know where to start. He doesn't even know what he's supposed to pursue. He doesn't have the right goal. Uh, a fool lives for this world instead of living for God. A wise person lives for the glory of God. Okay? So you have to have the right goal, and you have to choose the best means to reach that goal. That's what wisdom is. So um, the wise builder of the temple, right? They were wise builders. Uh, Moses is careful to clarify in the Old Testament. They're wise builders. What does that mean? They followed the blueprint that God had given. <laughs> A fool shows up and says, all right, Let's, uh, let's start over here. I'd like to see this room over. No, no. Say, hey, get out of here, you fool. We've got instructions from God how to build this temple. It's supposed to look exactly like this. So you set your eyes on that, and then he chooses the best means to do that. He knows how to get the logs. He knows what kind of wood to use. He knows how to, he does it all the right way. Well, there's a wise builder. He knows how to do it. He's skillful in it. That's what we call skill. That's what a skillful person is. A skillful carpenter has the right goal and chooses the best means to reach that goal. Um, so if you want to be wise, and James talks about that, and, you know, if, you want to be, if you're in, uh, going through trials and you want to be wise, ask for wisdom. God gives generously. Make sure you're not double-minded. right? Make sure you're not saying, well, I want to please God. No, I don't want to please God. I want to please God, but I also want to please my own desires. Well, you're not going to get anything. Because to be wise, you've got to agree what the goal is. It's to please God. It's to live for Him. And you cry out for Him. And if you want to know how to please Him, guess what? He'll show you. Right? So don't be double-minded, unstable in all your ways. Don't expect you'll receive anything from the Lord. Right? So He gives that warning. So we can pursue wisdom that way. And it ends up being skillfulness and wisdom. We live inside the trial. And we respond just, we navigate it just the way God would want us to do. We're focused on not pursuing our pleasure or our comfort, not trusting ourselves, but trusting Him and pursuing His glory, reading His Word to know how to answer each part, you know, all these things, okay? Well, God is also wise. He always also has the right goal. He does everything for His own glory. And He knows the best way to, to accomplish His glory in your life. And the proper time, see, He's going to have you at times in a low place. And it's not just about you. It's about His glory. So trust His wisdom and love His glory. You won't be able to love His wisdom unless you love the fact that He's the great one. So submit yourself to that. And say, Lord, I exist for your glory and your pleasure. If you want me down here, and I say that about my friends. Lord, if you don't want me to be in a place where people trust me, Oh, that's painful for me. I don't like it. But if you want me there, it's about your glory, right? So I think about his wisdom 
and then it helps me be wise. Because a fool is going to care about his own reputation above all. But I need to care about God. So uh, if you want me down here, if you want people not trusting me, if it seems like you'd want my ministry being enhanced by me having perfect character and everyone trusting me, but Lord, you may have other plans for me. And if you want me to be useful by, in some other way, um, putting a spotlight on your glory, then that's fine. I will be your instrument. And I'll trust you. So you submit to God's wisdom. Uh, number three, Peter directs us to remember God's love and care. Humble yourself, he says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So appreciate God's love and care. He cares for you. He loves you. So, uh, yeah, so I sat there that night and thought through those three elements. Also the three elements that uh, Jerry Bridges discusses in Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Wonderful chapters on each of those elements of God's character. Um, and I thought through how God was sovereign over what had happened and what will happen. I thought about his wisdom. He might choose differently than me, but I don't always know what's best for me or for other people. I thought about how he was wise in his dealings with my friends. And I was the instrument of pain in their lives. Actually, it didn't end up being painful for him. <laughs> I just thought it would be, as I thought about it that night. <laughs> but the Lord was in control of that. I thought, the Lord knows what's best for them, and he'll use it. Um, and then I thought about how the Lord loves me, and how it was because of his love that he allowed me to fail. Uh, just like he did for Peter. Um, when Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter didn't want that, obviously. And he said, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And his faith didn't fail. It did kind of look like it might, right? What's going to happen? Is Peter going to chuck it all? But no, he said, I'll meet up with you in Galilee and lead you from there. They pray that his faith wouldn't fail, but there was a place for Peter's faith to falter. And the Lord was using that in his life to prepare him, in part to write this letter of 1 Peter. He writes and shepherds with humility, greater humility. So... We can trust the Lord. You can trust the Lord. He cares for you. And so and we, we need to, to remind ourselves of why, why we know we, we can trust his love for us. Lord, I can trust you with what my friends will think about me. I can trust you to control the results of what I've done. I can trust you with those things. Father, you... You didn't spare your own son. You gave up your son for me. So I can take all these concerns and, and trust them to you. 
You'll do what's best for me. You'll love me. I can trust you. Lord Jesus, you were in the garden screaming out in pain. When you consider the cup of the Father's wrath that you would drink because of my sin. And you didn't want to go through that, but you were willing to do that because you love me. You love me and gave yourself up for me, right? Like Paul says in Galatians 2.20. And if you would give up yourself for me, I can trust you to take care of these results. I can trust you to determine what's best regarding how my friends think of me. I can trust you. Holy Spirit, you, you grieve when I sin. You grieve. You care deeply about my welfare. So I can trust you. I can trust you to determine these things, right? We take these assurances from Scripture, God's love and care for us, and we apply those things. So it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? <laughs> and a lot of prayer. So temptation to anxiety is actually a wonderful thing. Anxiety is not a wonderful thing, but the temptation is wonderful because it drives us to God, really to enjoy Him. And fight that battle. Fight that battle. Don't give in to anxiety. Don't live with worry. Don't busy yourself when you're plagued with worry. Don't just watch a movie. No, run to the Lord. Trust Him. Let your understanding of Him grow. Worship Him. Brother Greg. Yeah. Don't leave without telling us how this has ended in your life. How? What was the final? The finality of it. You just accepted it? Did you find peace with those people? I did. My relationship with them continues on today. And you know what? There's hardly anyone, <laughs> there's hardly anyone I know that trusts me more than, than these friends of mine. Now they live in Oregon. <laughs> but, uh, and they're serving the Lord. And so, yeah, I had conversations with them and it was just a humbling thing for me to talk with them about those things. And, um, and it actually, I think the Lord actually used it to build the trust because they did see how I love them. And I talked with them about how I was anxious about it and what I did to trust the Lord. <laughs> and uh, I think the Lord even used that. So they never held it against me. And actually, the, in talking with them, I don't think they were even tempted to hold it, hold it against me. And uh, it ended up being a pretty small matter when it all played out. But that night in bed, it was no small matter. And I continued. It wasn't like I dealt with it that night and whatever. And actually, I was, I was wrestling with it probably over an hour. And I, might, I, don't remember, I don't remember if I was even able to go back to sleep. But it was like a major thing. It was no 15 minutes back to sleep. It was big. And I continued to wrestle with it over that next week. Um, and the Lord did use it. I, he helped me in, so, in a myriad of ways. But uh, I think about that often when people share things with me. 
things that are private. And people do that quite a bit. Um, and I feel a weight of responsibility in carrying those things for people. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great responsibility the Lord gives me. And so he scared me early on. <laughs> and I'm thankful for it. So, Okay, I've got another essential to get through. And it's essential that I get through it. Uh, number two, second essential for getting grace from God for a spiritual battle. Resist Satan with steadfast faith in God. Resist Satan with steadfast faith in God. This is verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in the faith, or firm in faith. I think what translation says, firm in your faith, but it's firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. Now, there's two commands given here, actually. Well, I should say three. Uh, verse 8, be of sober spirit. There's a command. It's a big verb. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. And then, verse 9, resist him. The word but is not actually in the text. So, be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Resist him. Now, I take that. I, I think Peter really has in mind one idea here, one command. Kind of like uh, we, have, we might word it with two commands, but we really have one idea in mind. Get up and go to bed parent might say to his children. There's not really two separate things he's supposed to do. There's just one. Get up and go. That means go fast. Uh, so there is, there is a meaning added when you add the word get up, when you add it to the word go, right? But the, the child's not going to think of it as two separate responsibilities. He's going to think of it as one, but, he's gonna, but the first part, combining those two, adds urgency to it. And I think that's the point here. It's really resist Satan, but do it with great urgency, be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Resist him. It's all the same thing, I think. Um, that's why I word it as one point. Resist Satan with steadfast faith in God. Now, humility and resisting the devil. Isn't that funny? These are both put together. It's not funny, but what, isn't that interesting that he's putting them together? Right? Humble yourselves, casting all your anxiety on him, verses 6 and 7. Then verse 8, be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Resist Satan. Resist the devil. Now, as Peter is just writing this, I, I think, why did he put these together? Uh, James ties these two together as well. James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, says, He gives a greater grace, therefore it says, quoting the same Old Testament text, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that something? Both James and Peter... Put these together without skipping a beat. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think they both start out meditating on this text, this Old Testament warning. And so they think, okay. Now, if we've got to be humble, the first thing we've got to think of is resisting the devil. What's the connection between humility and resisting the devil? Uh, some have pointed out that an important balance is maintained. Being humble sounds passive, but neither James nor Peter thinks of it as a passive idea. Being humble, yeah, it's just kind of get down low, stop trying to, you know, but be passive uh, also includes, uh, well, it doesn't really mean be passive. Being humble doesn't mean being passive. You have to actively resist the devil, and that's part of humility. I'll say more about that in a little bit here, but 
Uh, you have an enemy, an adversary, the devil. Sometimes we think of him as a snake, sneaky snake who hides and slithers. We should be sober and alert when, within, when this snake is around. But Peter wants us to see something different about the devil in this passage. He isn't a sneaky snake in this passage. He's a loud, roaring lion. Why should we be sober and alert? Not because he's sneaky in this text, but because he's powerful and dangerous. He's fast and strong and has big teeth. He can tear you to pieces. That's what Peter's saying. One night our family went out for pizza to this restaurant. It's the best pizza place in town. Everyone knows it, and that's why it's packed. Every time we go in there, it was hard to find a parking spot, right? So I'm going down, trying to find a parking spot, and I managed to find one space and pull in only to hear Tiffany say, honey, I don't think this is a parking space, right? I mean, we've been circling, circling, trying to find this space. I don't think it's a parking space, she says. I responded, I think it is. I saw a yellow line marking the space. It was raining. It was dark. It was raining, but I saw a yellow line. Then from the back of the van, we hear Silas. He was young. We hear Silas say, where's the lion? I want to see him. And he is back there looking around out the window, you know. Well, before we got out of the car, we assured him that there was no lion in the parking lot. Can you imagine, though, how his walk from the van to the building would have been like if he thought there was really a lion? He would have excelled at being sober and alert. A study of, uh, by Barna Research Group revealed that 62% of Americans don't believe Satan is real. They believe he's just a symbol. As Christians, we know Satan is not merely a symbol. He's, he's real. But I wonder if we really believe it. I wonder if we really live like it. He is real. He is alive. And we need to have only the faith of a child to believe it. He's fast and strong and has big teeth. He's hungry. He wants to devour you, Peter says. He doesn't just want to injure you, but to destroy you. He's hungry, and you know what makes him salivate? It's your faith. It's your reliance. That's what faith is. It's reliance on God, reliance on Christ. He doesn't want to destroy you physically. He loses if he does that because your death is swallowed up in victory. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your hope and faith and reliance on God. He wants people to think that God is weak and powerless and small. That's his goal, to make you think that God, or to live, and to live like God is weak and powerless and small, unsatisfying, incapable. And he wants you to live that way so that God is not magnified. How does he do this? Look at verse 9. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. Satan, the lion, salivates when he sees your faith, and he strikes at you through suffering. That's one of his favorite tactics. And maybe the suffering in the form of persecution, or it may be one of many other forms of suffering. And maybe you think, well, I thought, God was sovereign over the suffering. How can Satan be behind it? Well, it's, it's not either or, right? It's both. Just think of uh, Job. Satan inflicts all these things upon Job 
Satan is doing it, but God's ultimately sovereign over it, and God has good purposes in it all. Satan inflicts pain on Job. He uses people to kill Job's children. That's amazing. He gives Job boils, all kinds of stuff. Satan does it, but only with God's permission. Satan was trying to destroy Job's faith, but through it all, God purifies Job's faith. Peter said the same already, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The way you're protected by God is God strengthens your faith so that you persevere. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God gives us our faith and supports our faith and purifies our faith. God uses trials to purify our faith. So what should you do in response to all this? You should resist Satan in your faith, being sober and alert. Don't hurl insults at him. That's not how you resist him. Don't try to cast him and his demons out of your house and out of your car and out of your life. Resist him in your faith. In your reliance, the battlefield is in your heart and mind. The issue is your faith. You resist him by hiding in Christ. You resist him by embracing the truth and putting all of your weight, all of your hope on what he actually says. You rely on him and you hope in him and you enjoy him. And when you do this, Satan scampers off into the shadows eventually. (laughs) He may put up a fight. This will be quite a battle. You won't fight well if you're drunk, spiritually drunk or spiritually sleepy. So be sober and alert spiritually. Don't be spiritually lazy. Watch out for things that give you a spiritual buzz that make you lazy. Oh man, I could talk for a while about that, but I don't have the time. So what's the connection between being humble and resisting Satan? We see the connection when we recognize that Satan is trying to destroy our faith and hope in God, and pride is destroying our faith and hope in God. All right, a couple encouragements here. The essence of the encouragement is that you're not alone. The essence of both of these two encouragements that Peter gives at the end. Number one, first encouragement, remember you aren't alone in this battle. You have other believers with you. I think I left the blanks for that. seems to me I altered it a little bit from my notes. Okay. Uh, So verse 9 says, Resist him firm in the faith, knowing, here's the encouragement, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. You don't fight alone. Be encouraged when you look around and see others fighting the same battle. Many don't experience this encouragement because they don't see their brethren fighting the same battle because they're disconnected from the church. Some of the blessings of the church and fellowship. We all suffer. We all have trials. Get in the church and actually hear other people and their trials and help them uh, endure suffering and you'll, you'll know that you're not alone. So that's one encouragement. Second encouragement he gives. It's a bigger one. 
you aren't alone in this battle. God himself guarantees your ultimate victory for his own name's sake. Love it. God himself guarantees your ultimate victory for his own name's sake. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might. New American Standard says dominion. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. Your suffering is for a little while. In other words, the suffering you experience on the earth is but a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. So he's given us that eternal perspective. God is, he says, the God of all grace in that he is the source and the giver of grace. All grace, he says, I think, to show the largeness of his grace. The God who is the source and giver of infinite grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's called you. This is the effectual call. We've talked about that. Uh, Not the external call, as in many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is the inward call when he, with his sovereign power, calls to you to to come alive and to follow him and to live for him. Um, Like Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. So everyone who's called is justified. So Peter's saying, God called you to his eternal glory. He didn't call you just to have initial faith. He called you to the end. He called you to eternal glory. You who are, as he said at the beginning, you who are elect, who are chosen, exiles in the dispersion. He's called you to eternal glory in Christ. And he'll get you there. He won't stop short. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Parsing all those words is tough. Uh, you'll, you'll notice the translations vary quite a bit, and uh, almost like they put them in a different order because they're all synonyms. And I don't think Peter intends for us to carefully dice it out. He's stacking up a bunch of words. Uh, I, I should have come up with a good example for how we do that. You probably might be able to. Um, but he stacks up a bunch of words that all overlap in meaning to say, he's going to do it. You're safe. You're strong. He's got you. He'll make sure you reach the final destination without disqualifying yourself by chucking your faith in God. You're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he does this for his own name's sake. I think that's the point of verse 11. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. So Peter stops and just praises God. To you belongs power. You are powerful. There is no one who stands in your way. And you prove it by calling your people out of darkness into light and calling them to glory, eternal glory in Christ. And you have all power. So Peter breaks out in praise. He knows it's all about God magnifying himself. And so he ascribes to God the full weight of who he is. And so God will see you through. That's the encouragement. 
yeah, there's a, 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 a Satan who will tear you to pieces. But partly the way that God in his great power sees you all the way through and, and strengthens you to, to fight against your enemy and to resist him is that he empowers you to believe this command and, and to take these encouragements. He uses, he works by means of the warnings that he gives you. So receive the warnings. And you pray about what Satan might be trying to do in your life right now. And be alert, be spiritually sober, and resist him by focusing on your faith and reliance on Christ and on his promises. And he'll see you through. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, help us not to worry, but to humble ourselves before you and to rely on you not to rely on ourselves. Save us, Lord, from relying on ourselves and being anxious. Because obviously we'll never measure up. Help us to rely on you and in that way to magnify you. And then we'll receive, we'll, we'll, we'll receive grace. We'll enjoy your favor toward us. And Lord, prepare us, strengthen us to be on the alert because we have an enemy seeks to devour our faith. May we resist him by knowing you, loving you, trusting in you. And we thank you that you called us. That's why we're here today. That's why we love your word. Because you've called us. Thank you for your mercy. We rejoice in, in your mercy. We rejoice in your love for us. We rejoice in your great power toward us. Let me pray this through Christ. Amen.